This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Affirm Films' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. A few years ago, Pew Research Center reported that only 41% of millennials believe religion is very important in their lives, as opposed to 72% of the greatest generation and 59% of baby boomers. And more recent research shows that among people ages 23 to 38, two-thirds attend worship services only a few times a year or less. Four in 10 say they seldom or never go. And these statistics obviously are really troublesome to those of us who are parenting teenagers, especially when polling shows that among this age group, only 4% of what we call Generation Z has a biblical worldview. What can we do to help shape our teenagers to love the Lord and to live lives that honor Him? We're going to tackle that today with Jeffrey Dean, who is a family and teen culture expert with more than 25 years of ministry experience. And he is also the author of the revised and updated edition of the book we're going to be talking about called Raising Successful Teens how to help your child honor God and live wisely. Jeffrey, it's great to have you with us today. How are you? Hi, Janet. I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to have you. What do you make of all these statistics? I know I kind of rattled off a bunch of them here, but we seem to hear these all the time, that the younger the generation gets, the less likely they are to have a biblical worldview. And I know a lot of parents are really, really concerned about this. Yeah, the statistics, I appreciate you sharing those, are just overwhelming. I sit and listen to those and I have two teens. I'm in the business, in the ministry of working with students, but I, I hear your statistics, and it, it amazes me when I hear them. And I, I remind parents, particularly those listening today, that, you know, it's less about getting caught up in those numbers, and it's more about realizing that we are in a battle. And I write a lot about the battle and talk a lot at our events through the country, across the country, just reminding parents that the enemy hates your child. Your child is numbered. He's out to get your kids, and whether they're on the honor roll or on meth, He hates them. He wants to destroy them. You play a critical role as a parent in helping shape not only their present, but their future success. All right. When you talk to parents and you hear some of their concerns about teenagers, I know the concerns are many, but what what sorts of feedback are you getting from parents about their concerns about their teenagers and some of the pressures that teens are facing today? I think just the overwhelming um, tsunami, tsunami of information that just is sending this, this message to our kids that it doesn't matter how you live. Anything goes, right isn't right, wrong isn't wrong, and sadly what, what feels good wins. Now those messages are packaged in a variety of ways. We, we know that as parents, but there's just this overwhelming message, this incessant message in culture today, permeating culture, telling our kids it doesn't matter who you are or what you do, just as long as it works for you or it feels good. And I tell you, it's so hard to combat that lie, and that's why we've got to be in it with our kids. And that's why I remind parents every time we have an opportunity to connect with them through our online ministry or, of course, this book, to just, well, to remember that your kids are watching your lead. Uh, we remind parents everywhere we go that you're the greatest influence in the life of your kid. They're looking to you. And regardless of the messages of culture and the battle of Satan, reality is you're in it whether you want to be in it or not, whether you realize it or not. Your kids are watching your lead. And so every day you've got that privilege, but equally a tremendous responsibility to be 
all in to be that parent that your kids are desperate for you to be. Well, you said something really important. I honed in on this right away when I read it right at the outside of your book, where you made that statement that you as the parent are the most influential person in your teenager's life. I wonder how many Christian parents actually believe that, though, because it yeah. doesn't seem like that. It's like, well, the Internet, the smartphone, the, the, the friends, the people that they deal with online or whatever it happens to be. I think a lot of parents are absolutely convinced I may be one of the least large influences in my child's life, but you say the opposite. Yeah, and you know, and we hear this a lot, and sometimes it's easy, I think, for any parent to, to buy the lie. I have to even push back on that lie, because you're right. The messages of friends, uh, the messages of those devices they carry with them everywhere uh, would, would tell us otherwise, but I, but I, remind, uh, I remind parents that r- regardless of what you think culture might want you to believe, or even sometimes maybe what your kids even believe, they're watching your lead. They're watching you do life. They're learning how to do life by watching how you live life. And so they may never say it. They may never show it. And your kids may never fully even be aware of it. But they're watching. You hold the microphone. You are the megaphone in your home. And so how you live, they live. And wow, that's a tremendous responsibility we hold as parents. Well, it sure is true. You're right about that. So when you're talking about raising successful teens, uh, a lot of people may say, well, what does it mean to have a successful teen? What would all be packed into that particular adjective? Yeah, I I, I appreciate you you asking this question because I'll tell you, Janet, we struggled to even put this word on the title of the book because it could be misleading and it could be an unrealistic expectation that we set. And so I want to remind parents, whether they read the book or not, that, you know, it's less, it's less about perfection because our kids can't be perfect. We aren't perfect at parents. And it's more about guiding them. You know, the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, the greatest commandment, yep. with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And so as it relates to success for our kids, I know my wife, Amy, and I, we are hoping and praying and strategically working towards this. It's less about perfection, and it's more about raising those kids who, above all, aspire to love Jesus with every facet of their lives. And so whether it be their dating lives, their online lives, or what college to choose, what profession they embrace, it's, again, less about hitting a home run, and it's more about just daily desiring to want to honor God in all areas of my life. What a challenge, but wow, what a great goal to set for our lives. Oh, well said. I agree completely. And when you talk about the fact, you talk about some foundational truths, and one of those has to do with the authority of Scripture and that nothing is more authoritative than the truth of God's Word. I I fully agree with that. But you also talk about how some parents fail in that regard. And I think it's important sometimes for us to own up to our failures in order to correct them. What are some of the failures that parents have in terms of really communicating to their kids, the Bible is the word of God, and you need to know that that is the foundational truth for your whole life. I think the number one failure is time. We're all busy. We're, we're programmed to be busy. We all live very busy lives. If you have a child living at home, a teenager like Amy and I do living in your home, life's just busy and you hit the ground running from moment one. And so it's really a strategy that we must embrace to commit time to looking for moments of opportunity, creating moments of opportunity. I talk in the book about one of the the greatest opportunities you have just about every day, and that's dinner time. Studies show the average family has dinner less than two nights a week. And so we've got to be strategic, working around practices and school events and work events. But dinner time can be connection time. One thing I, I clearly remember about growing up in my home was my mom and dad used dinner time to create 
spiritual moments of connection. We would read the Bible. We had a little devotional book. We, we kept on the table next to our, our, our kitchen table. And so every family's got to eat. So why not use that moment to engage in conversation, uh, to pray, to open the word, to just talk and have those conversations that our kids are longing for us to have, even though they may not know we are. And so it's less about where you've been and what you've done in the past, right or wrong. And it's more about realizing, hey, I've got about 18 years or whatever is left with my child. How am I going to use these moments? The dinner table, the drive to school, sitting on the back porch on weekends, watching football, looking for moments of opportunity to engage with our kids, to push them spiritually and get God's Word into them, because that Word shapes them in so many ways. That's really good. And when you're talking about doing that during dinner time, what kind of difference do you see that making for parents who do do that, you know, at the dinner table, around the table with the rest of the family? What kind of difference does it make for the kids who are growing up that way? I think it shows our kids, and I know it showed this for me growing up, that God's Word is about so much more than just something we do once a week at church, that it truly can be a guide for our lives. So whether it's the dinner table or a conversation in the living room, or when your child comes into your bedroom at night and just sits on the edge of your bed and you begin to talk, looking for moments to get God's Word into everyday conversations shapes our kids in invaluable ways. And it shows them that God's Word isn't just about what we do in Sunday school or in small group or in youth group, but it really is a way that mom and dad are, are embracing as a holistic approach to life. And Psalm 119 says, how can a young man or young woman live his way pure by living according to the word. So looking for those moments to get God's word into our kids' hearts and let it shape them in powerful ways. Boy, that's so true. Such good stuff. There's so much good stuff in this book, Raising Successful Teens. We'll take a break and come back with Jeffrey Dean. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Firm Films comes the Kendrick Brothers Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous take moviegoers on a cinematic journey that invites you to think differently about your earthly father and how you relate to God through five true stories. I'm stunned. He's real. He's really out there. And this is really him. This is really him. Show Me the Father. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theater September 10th. More information is available at showmethefathermovie.com. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. 
If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Jeffrey Dean is joining me as well, family and teen culture expert and author of the book we're talking about, Raising Successful Teens, How to Help Your Child Honor God and Live Wisely. And Jeffrey, you were saying before the break some really important advice that I think every parent needs to take to heart, and that is to really drive home with your kids the authority of God's Word. And you can do this at moments like dinner time or on the dinner table, reading the Word of God, having a devotional time. What about some of these other things that always crop up I'm a mom of teenagers as well. All of these things crop up where kids become teenagers and every parent knows this. They become more independent, which is important. It's the route to adulthood as they begin to take on more and more independence. But there's also less time for a lot of us with our kids. And there's more time that they're spending with other people. And you don't always know what they're hearing or what they're seeing. And a lot of people, a lot of parents can just freak out about that. How do I keep tabs on what my child is into or learning or hearing without being a helicopter parent? I mean, how do you navigate those sorts of issues? Yeah, you know, we could talk the rest of the afternoon about that yeah. or uh, the rest of the day, the rest of the month. There's just so, you're, you're so right. There's so many things our kids are involved in and looking for those moments, even though they're short, is a strategy we must get better at as parents. But, you know, I remind, I remind parents everywhere that your your kids, even though they may not ask for it, and they probably won't ever ask for it, they want time with you. And of course they need time with you, but they want that time probably more than you know, and they'll ever communicate. And so you've just got to push into those moments and look for those opportunities, probably even create those opportunities. One thing my wife has been great at is about once a week, we strategize for the week. We have calendar time and I remind parents everywhere, this may be the most important statement I'm going to make on air with you today, Janet, that you know, our kids don't have to be involved in everything that's out there for them. Yep. We want to re- remain communication in the home. We've got to manage calendar control. And so okay. Amy, my wife, is so good at this, at creating moments, getting it on the calendar, and then sticking to it. We have family meetings. I know that sounds so legalistic, but it's so true. We, we talk, we open up our calendars, we get our devices out, and we get family time on the calendar. Just about every Sunday night, if, if there's not a homework project or if I'm not traveling somewhere, Uh, preaching or speaking. It's our family night, and we really work hard to protect that night. So I tell families listening today, figure out what works for you. Start where you are. Start small. What a perfect time to get into the rhythm now of creating family moments, sticking to it, making it work. Start small. You'll be amazed at the progress throughout this new year. Well, that's a great idea. I don't think that's legalistic. I think that's just smart. But what sorts of things do you do with your teenagers when you're strategizing for family time? What are some ideas? I'll tell you, one thing we do is we do our Netflix nights. Now, a lot of people listening may not have subscribed to Netflix. It's all good. So figure out what that night looks like for you. A very good friend of mine, their family loves to bowl. They're bowlers, and so they don't hit it every week. But at least once, if not twice a month, they're, they're bowling. Another friend of mine, they're movie buffs. And so my friend told me, Jeffrey, we have found something that our kids love, and we've made it important to us. 
and it works. So find some things that are important to your kids, um, whether it's shooting skeet or playing basketball <laughs> or volunteering in your community. Find out what they're passionate about. You get in line and get passionate with them. You'll be amazed at how they're engaged and how you connect and where that relationship goes from there. There are countless ways, but start where you are, get involved, and really make that your goal this year as a parent. That's a great idea. You know, going back a little bit to some of the you know advice that you give in the book about confronting your child concerning the things of God, I think this is really important, too, going back to what you said about spending time together in the Word at dinner time or whenever is convenient. You mentioned, and you said this a couple of minutes ago, that your teenager does want you to be involved in his life, whether or not it seems that way, it really is that way. Yeah. What's interesting to me is when we're looking at the statistics and we're seeing our own kids... There seems to be a need, and I've heard a lot of parents say this, for some sort of interaction pertaining to apologetics, to making sure that your Christian teenager really understands the Christian faith. And I think you've got some good ideas here where you get into these questions to ask your teenager about what do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe that Christianity is distinct from other religions? Those sorts of things. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit and explain what you're talking about there where you really dig into some of these questions? questions that teenagers have and, and get them to think through these important issues? Yeah, so we, I love that you brought this up. We, we came up with questions that we believe are critical. We could have had a whole book about questions, uh, but we really presented five questions at the beginning of the book that are critical that our students need to answer, that we as moms and dads need to be able to answer about whether or not we believe God's Word to be absolute truth, how Christianity is distinct from other religions, Here's a big question. Number three, are there multiple ways to get to heaven? Your kids want the answer to that question. Yep. And I give you the answer in the book on page 44. Question number four, do I believe that all religions other than Christianity are false? And do I believe, number five, in the deity of Jesus? Again, just five questions, but five really important questions because your students, parents, listen, your students are looking to you for moral, for relational, and for spiritual guidance. Yep. They are looking to you to help them answer these tough questions. The world is giving them opposite answers, answers that do not align with God's Word. And so it may seem elementary, but it's so powerful, and that's why we put it at the beginning of the book, to help answer these spiritual questions that not only will shape your kids' lives, but ultimately will define their destiny. So important, can be so powerful. I encourage parents, grab the book, grab that chapter walk through those questions. There are five questions there again. I know I've already said that, but here are five dinner time conversation moments. You could tackle one a week or one a month, however you choose, but great questions to present at the dinner table, open up God's word, look for the answers and just engage in conversation with kids. Because here's what it's going to do. You do this with your kids. It's going to show that you're involved and you're engaged, but it's also going to show that you're concerned about their spiritual growth, where they spend eternity, and you want to help them in that journey to spiritual success. That is so great because really they're becoming more and more independent when they're teenagers and you want to teach them how to think. And it seems when we do this in our house, we talk about apologetics things with our kids all the time. One question naturally leads to another one and it really ends up in a longer discussion. Hey, speaking of that, what about this question? And my my friend here asked me this, atheist friend of mine asked me this question. I'm not really sure how to answer it, mom. What do I say? That's the great thing is once you open that door, it just keeps on going, at least in our family, which I I have found to be wonderful. And it tells your children, hey, mom and dad not only want to give me truth, but they're interested in my opinion in this conversation. Right. They not only want to teach, 
but they want to engage in conversation with me and let me be a part of that conversation. And that is, we know this, that is how our kids grow. That is how they begin to define a basis for which those things they believe. And that's how they embrace these truths to guide them the rest of their lives, by allowing them rather than preaching them into the right way, letting them work through that, and we just be their guides in that process. Great point. That's a really great point. On on some of the issues that come up in culture, you can't avoid this as well, but you've got some really good advice and some good things that you talk about in the book relating to talking to your teenager about things like dating and about sex and pornography and some of these things. What about the dating landscape? How do you handle that one? I know parents tend to differ a little bit on when their kids can date, but you know, these days, a lot of Christian parents are worried about what can happen out there. And that's always been a problem, but it seems to be more of a problem these days. How do you navigate that? Yeah, I think it's less about an age. So don't get freaked so much about, hey, what's the proper age? And it's more about, hey, you know your kid more than I do as an author. You know where they are. You know their spiritual journey. You know their maturity. When you choose to allow them to begin that process, you've got to remember this. You can't just, well, you just can't send them out there alone. You've got to stay engaged. You've got to stay involved. That's why we included an entire chapter in this journey to help parents understand that your kids need direction in this moment. Whenever that right time is, your your goal is to help them develop habits that make dating fun and safe and God-honoring. And so we give you some strategies in there. We teach you how to ask the right questions. That's really important rather than just telling them what they should and shouldn't do on their dates. Ask them questions about what kind of person it is that they want to date. Hmm. We had our daughters make a top 10 list of the kind of person they want to spend the rest of their lives with when they were 10 and 11 and 12. And it got them thinking early on, long before marriage, obviously, about what kind of person not only do they want to marry, but what kind of person is dateable and is not dateable. And it was, it was so neat, Janet, to allow them to work through that, to come up with their top 10 list and to let them formulate in their own minds, okay, this is the kind of person that won't align with me, so I probably would never date that person because I won't marry that kind of person. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. Really good. So we we allowed them to kind of work through that, and that's obviously a list that continues to, to ebb and flow as they grow and as they mature, but it was a great basis in the beginning. I tell parents, whatever the age of your child, when you allow them to start dating, be in it with them. Pray with them before they leave on their dates. Know the, the parents of your your daughter's boyfriend, know the parents of your your son's girlfriend, be engaged, look for moments of opportunity, double dating, group dating, letting them date at home. Listen, there are countless ways. The most important thing is to know this. They can't be in it alone. I've already said that because it's so important. Your, your kids need you, even if they don't know they need you, to help them walk through these challenging and entangling years. And be brief is so important, too, that you talk about, okay, what happened on the date? What happened that probably shouldn't happen? Or are there some things you can change? Or are there some environments you should avoid? That conversation is really topics of countless engagement. But the important thing is, is that you're in it with them. They need you in it with them. Absolutely. What do you tell Christian parents about their long-term goal in parenting when you are really looking at the long-term strategy of helping your child honor the Lord and live wisely for the duration of his or her lives? How do you get parents to focus on that end purpose? Well, well, I love, I, I love the question. And a perfect place that my mind goes is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven where we have this promise from the Lord that he wants to promise us, or he has this promise that he wants to prosper us, not to harm us, yep. and give us a hope in the future. Probably just about every listener listening knows Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Yes. But so many of our listeners probably don't know Jeremiah 29, verse 12, which gives us the answer to how we get verse 11. 
We all want that prosperity, that hope, and that future. Well, verse 12 tells us how we get there. And it says this, call on me, pray to me, I will listen to you, and you will find me when you seek me with all. There's the word, all your heart. I My love challenge it. to parents is in every aspect, one day at a time, to pursue the all. There you go. That's perfect. Jeffrey Dean, the name of the book, Raising Successful Teens. Jeffrey, thank you so much. It was great to have you with us today. Thank you. It's an honor. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet for today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by a firm film, Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Meffer today. Well, Teddy Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States and has often been derided posthumously for his progressivism. After all, it was Roosevelt who formed the Progressive Party of 1912 after he lost the Republican nomination to President William Howard Taft. Now, scholars have noted that Roosevelt also pushed executive powers to new limits, arguing that the rise of industrial capitalism had rendered limited government obsolete. But my next guest says the progressive Teddy Roosevelt story is a myth that should be busted. And so we're we're going to talk about it today with Daniel Ruddy, who is author of Theodore the Great, Conservative Crusader. And it's great to have you here, Daniel. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. Sure thing. Well, this is interesting. I have heard for many, many years, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, it was a great progressive and a lot of the problems we have today in America can be stemmed back to him. What is your take on that? When people talk about Theodore Roosevelt as a progressive, why do you think that that's a myth? Right. Uh, that's why I wrote my book, actually. Theodore the Great Conservative Crusader is really a response to the many critics who have uh, emerged in the last 10, 15 years or so. And most of these critics have been on the right, uh, especially libertarians, uh, people like Len Beck, mm-hmm. who has been on something of a jihad against Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, there have been others, uh, Jonah Goldberg, who writes for the National Review, he wrote a book called Liberal Fascism, Mm -hmm. in which he basically called Teddy Roosevelt the fascist. I mean, really unreal if you think about it. Um, This idea that Teddy Roosevelt is a progressive has become very entrenched because, as you said in your introduction, he led the Progressive Party in 1912. That's a fact. That's indisputable. Right. Um, it, the nickname of the party was called, it was called the Bulmoose Party, but officially it was the Progressive Party. But words, of course, change their meaning over time. And we live in the year 2016, and Teddy ran as a progressive in 1912. That's over a century into the past. So back then, the word progressive meant something totally different than it does today. Back then, it meant a sensible reformer, someone who was listening to the American people. Uh, It wasn't someone, like, today the word has come to mean basically liberal. Uh, Many liberals use the word to disguise the fact that they're liberals because the word liberal has a negative connotation, so they say, oh, I'm a progressive. So when you think of progressives today, you think of Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. Now, Teddy Roosevelt was many things, but 
he, he is not another Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, or Hillary Clinton. Right. He was a deeply conservative man, and I, I really reveal this in great detail in my book. Right. Now, when you say that he's a deeply conservative man, where did that show up in his policies? Where do you most see that to be evident in his presidency? Okay. Well, the word conservative today, you know, you can define conservatism many different ways. One way is to a conservative is someone who wants change, but wants it to become in a slow and safe, methodical way. On the extreme of the spectrum of change, you have a revolution, you know, a revolutionary radical, someone who wants a very rapid change. Mm-hmm. And someone who wants no change at all is a reactionary. That would be on the far right. Mm-hmm. Now, Teddy was a conservative in the sense that he didn't want a revolution. He wanted slow change, slow and steady change, steady reform. So in that sense, he was definitely a conservative. And when you measure him against what it means to be a conservative today, you know, today conservatives are hawks on national security. Teddy was certainly that. You asked for concrete policy things. He, well, he doubled the size of the Navy. Right. He built the Panama Canal, or uh, rather acquired the territory for the canal. Um, you know, he, he sent the, 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 the new American Navy on a great voyage around the world to showcase American power. You know, these are examples of his conservatism in terms of economic policy. He basically continued the policies of his uh, of his predecessor, William McKinley, who was Wall Street's favorite son and didn't, um, you know, do very much to to, uh, to to implement many of the reforms that radicals at that time wanted, such as the free silver or you know, making the, the, the currency of the country more elastic. Yeah. So Teddy basically followed McKinley's policy and, and stuck very strictly to the gold standard, for instance. In terms of social conservatives, you know, Teddy really epitomized that. He was against divorce. He, he railed against birth control, you know, because he was worried the population wasn't growing as fast as it should. So on all the measures that we think of, of of as a conservative, he really passes the test with flying colors. Well, that's interesting that you point out things like social conservatism. So obviously he was more socially conservative. But what about things like the antitrust prosecutions and, you know, wanting to call for graduated income and inheritance taxes, some of the financial things that were part of his presidency that are often brought up by scholars. How do you respond to those sorts of things about him being a progressive that way? I have a I have a chapter called the trust buster myth. A lot of his critics portray him as some sort of enemy of, of business when he really wasn't. The real enemy of, of business were the radicals on the left, people like William Jennings Bryan, who ran for the presidency three times and lost. Bryan wanted to seize control of the railroads. Right. I mean, that really is the very definition of socialism, the government taking ownership of private property, and Teddy was very much opposed to that. Brian also wanted to put in jail people like Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, you know, the so-called financiers and robber barons of that age. Teddy busted uh, a couple of trusts. His his one major uh, achievement in that 
regard was dissolving J.P. Morgan's railroad combination, the, the Northern Securities Holding Company. He did that in 1902, and when he did that, it made him great news, and that's really where he earned this nickname of his, the Trust Buster, mm-hmm. because he enforced the uh, Sherman Antitrust Law, which had been on the books for about 12 years, but no president really had enforced it before him. But other than that, he really didn't do much in terms of uh, busting up trusts. He he really he he his policy was really more of a uh, he wanted to to make an object lesson or send a a very strong signal that there would be new regulation. But he didn't want to disrupt the economy because he one he wanted to get re- uh, reelected and he knew that prosperity would help him do that. And he also knew that the American um, the United States was strong with the strong and prosperous industrial base. So he, above all else, he wanted America to be a great power in the world, and he didn't want to destroy industry. So he, um, you know, his policy evolved. At the beginning, he was strong. You know, he really was, uh, uh, you know, aggressively pursuing his antitrust policy. By the end of his administration, he was more of a, a trust regulator. Hmm. And he actually uh, gave the green light to U.S. Steel, the biggest trust in the world at that time, to acquire its main competitor, the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company. He did this in 1907 during the midst of a financial panic when he was worried that if he didn't do it, the economy would have collapsed. So uh, at that time, all his critics came out of the woodwork and said, you know, the the great trust buster has been defeated and vanquished by the by his enemies. Wow! Uh, so it really is a myth when you look at his record. His successor, for instance, Taft, William Howard Taft, a very conservative Taft, actually, um, you know, brought twice as many cases, uh, antitrust lawsuits, than Roosevelt did. So hmm. his, he, as I said, his policy was very restrained, and really the very definition of a conservative policy. That is really interesting. Well, and there are a lot of other issues, of course, to get into. We're going to do that when we come back. Daniel Ruddy with us talking about his book, Theodore the Great, Conservative Crusader. We'll return right after this on Janet Meffer Today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Hi, this is Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, and I want to send a big thank you for standing for life to you. Because of listeners like you in 2020, Preborn sponsored over 45,000 free ultrasound sessions to women in need, saved over 31,000 babies, and prayed with over 6,500 women to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord. The battle rages on in 2021 at an even greater level. And our goal is to give Planned Parenthood the biggest competition ever. 
Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMafford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Glad you're here and glad to be speaking with Daniel Ruddy, author of Theodore the Great, Conservative Crusader. Yes, it is true that he was the founder of the Progressive Party of 1912, but in fact... My guest argues that this is a myth, that he was truly a progressive in the same strain as Barack Obama. Now, going back to that, Daniel, this is an interesting question, because you said this right at the outset, the fact that we equate the word progressive as the same thing back in 1912, uh, you know, as the same as what we're seeing today with the progressives. What would you say would be the distinctions between progressive as Theodore Roosevelt understood it and practiced it versus Barack Obama? What would be the big differences? Well, great question. Um, today, the word progressive is, is really used to describe an ideology, you know, a leftist point of view. Whereas back then, the word really, as I said, it meant someone who um, was more of a uh, it was more of a populist belief system where the proponents of progressivism in 1912 really believed in popular rule. They wanted to democratize the country more than it was, because at that time, the political system was incredibly corrupt. And the voice of the American people was really stifled because of the, uh, this corruption, where party bosses and robber baron millionaires really controlled the political system. So um, the great difference, I, I would use this as a perfect example of the difference of course, President Obama's signature legislation was the Affordable Care Act, or, or as most people know it, Obamacare. Right. Now, that system was essentially rammed down the throats of the American people. It was very unpopular at the time it was enacted. It just barely, by one vote, passed through the U.S. Senate, and by just one vote, passed through the Supreme Court. And if you look at opinion polls, consistently... Over 50% of the American people opposed it. And that's even true today, you know, four or five years uh, after it's gone into effect, or three or four, rather. Um, 
So you could say that that's a prime example of not listening to the American people, in fact, doing the opposite, imposing some sort of ideological vision in a top-down fashion on the public. Whereas Teddy Roosevelt and the progressives of 1912, they were really about a bottom-up approach, listening to the American people, empowering the American people at the expense of the government. Hmm not the other way around. And let me give you a quick example of that. In 1912, one of the signature things that Teddy ran on as president was to enact sweeping reforms which would increase the power of the people in in terms of controlling their government. So he favored the ballot initiative, which was a revolutionary idea at that time. So when a ballot initiative was called, the public could uh, then call a referenda or referendum on a particular issue and directly vote on it, thereby bypassing their legislature. Teddy favored the recall of elected officials who didn't do their job who, or who ignored the public, uh, public's will. He wanted to recall judicial decisions that went against the public. So all of these things, and he also, of course, favored the direct election of senators. So no longer would state legislatures name uh, U.S. US senators. The people in each state would uh, name those senators. And, of course, that became the 17th Amendment. And eventually, uh, today, of course, is part of the Constitution. So all of these things empower the public, not the government. So that would be the, the difference. That's interesting, and especially when you're talking about a bottom-up movement versus a top-down movement, and that's very true. What about, though, for example, one of the arguments that has been made is that Roosevelt, when he gave that new nationalism speech in 1910, he had argued that the right to property could be justified only if it benefited the community, and the only way to benefit the community was to redistribute the wealth. So people will go on you know, and see that redistribute the wealth phrase and say, well, wait a minute, that's classic progressivism, as Barack Obama right. would understand it. How do you understand it in the 1910 context? I'm so glad you brought that up, because Glenn Beck, in particular him and others, constantly cherry-picked that quote from one speaker. Roosevelt wrote 150,000 letters in his life. He wrote 20 books. He gave countless speeches. And to cherry-pick one little line from a speech, you know, it was inarticulately phrased. But Teddy Roosevelt was no socialist. As I detail in my book, I can cherry-pick cherry quotes where he denounced socialism. So, you know, if you get into that game of cherry-picking quotes, I have many more on my side than that one you know, inarticulate phrase he used in Osawatomi, Kansas, in his famous New Nationalism speech. Teddy was not a socialist. Teddy denounced socialism constantly. Um, I can't explain why he said it the way he said it. It really is indefensible. But, um, you know, he was not, as I mentioned, in terms of the railroads, you know, he he didn't want the government to have control over private property. Yeah. He was a great defender of private property, and you can see that consistently, um, you know, through his presidency and through his public career. So, um, you know, I think, I think when we judge historical figures, we have to look at the totality of their record and what they said and what they did. 
we can't just take one little phrase and then say, aha, this is what this guy stood for, because yes. it, it's just not fair. No. Right. And I mean, if you have that much in terms of his writings and you're taking it all in, in context, then you have to look at everything and, and weigh things. And that was what you're doing in your yeah. book. Yeah. And, and yeah, let me let me just give you one other quick example. You brought up the income tax and redistributed wealth. He, he actually was against the income tax, and this is, act, you know, we all hate the income tax today, and libertarians, people like Glenbeck, everyone attacks the income tax, but the income tax at that time was a very popular policy. Uh, conservatives, you know, the really wealthy were opposed to an income tax, but the public at large were very much in favor of it. And this, this is sort of a complicated discussion. You know, it'll take a little time to describe, but what we had on place before the income tax was the protective tariff, which in effect raised prices on consumer goods. So it was a really unfair tax that was imposed on everyone, at all, strata, all income strata of the country. And the, what the income tax did when it finally was implemented in 1913 by the way, it was passed by a Republican Congress, <laughs> and it was enacted into the Constitution when three-quarters of the states ratified that amendment. Um, so that, that by itself shows the popularity of it. It only affected the top 0.5%. And when, when that top 5.5% received this tax, it meant that the protective tariff could be eliminated and thereby all these conservative, like, for instance, the duty on imported sugar, which increased the, increased the price of food in the country, was eliminated. Hmm. So it, 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 we don't think of Woodrow Wilson as a great tax cutter, <laughs> but he actually was wow. in terms of the effect. Now, Teddy favored an inheritance tax, and it wasn't to redistribute wealth, he was very concerned with this idle, like a, a whole class of aristocracy who were behaved like the French prior to the French Revolution. You know, the idle rich. Yes. And he was worried that this entrenched group of very wealthy would incite the laboring masses to revolt and have a revolution. So he didn't want that. And that's why he favored an, an inheritance tax. It really wasn't to redistribute wealth. Right. It was mainly for the goal, like you just mentioned, of making sure that you didn't have an uprising at some point because of the idle yeah, rich. And, yeah. And and at that to that point, you have to remember the country was very different over a century ago. Today we have a thriving consumer economy with a very large middle class. Back then there was really no middle class to speak of. The consumer economy had not emerged. What you had was really this really tiny group of extremely wealthy people and then the laboring masses uh, below. So you didn't, the whole social structure was different. And Teddy had to respond to that in a different way than a president would today. But he did so in a very reasonable, sensible way by listening to the American people and enacting reforms in a, in a very um, methodical, and responsible fashion. It yeah. was, he, didn't, 
He wasn't like Woodrow Wilson. He didn't have some utopian ideological leftist vision that he wanted to impose on the country. Well, that's right. Well, the name of the book, we're unfortunately we're out of time, but the name of the book is Theodore the Great Conservative Crusader, Daniel Ruddy, spending time with us. It was so interesting to have you here. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, you're welcome. Have a great day, and thank you for tuning in to Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time. God bless. This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Affirm Films' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th.